When we think of the Transcendentalists, we don't often think of Kentucky as being an essential part of that movement. In many ways, it wasn't. That much is true. There were certainly those who enjoyed the writings of the Transcendentalists here in Lexington and Louisville and elsewhere. But there were few, if any, pockets of Transcendentalist communities outside of New England. Now, I love the Transcendentalists. They are an essential part of my identity as a Unitarian Universalist. And they were the first love of mine in many ways in this faith. When high school and college classes were required to read their writings, Emerson, Thoreau, the Alcotts, Hawthorne, uh, you name it, to me it was as if we were reading and reciting Holy Scripture. And when I lived in Concord, Massachusetts, inhabiting uh, a world that they inhabited, living next door, uh, just a few doors down from Emerson, down the road from the Alcotts, finding acorns at Walden Pond, it was a year of pilgrimage for me. They weren't perfect, not at all. The Transcendentalists are no choir of angels. And their hagiography is one of human flaws and mistakes. And yet I love them nonetheless. And there's so much I want to tell you about them. Our journey through Transcendentalism this morning does indeed take us through Lexington, Kentucky. The story begins in 1812 on one of the farms in Fayette County. And the county was just 32 years old at that time. And so anyway, in early 1812, and I need to be clear, some accounts say late 1811. It's a little unclear. But anyway, 1811, 1812, a boy was born by the name of Lewis Hayden. He was born into slavery, never knowing his father, for his father had been sold before his birth. And Lewis Hayden would spend his early childhood owned by a Presbyterian minister. And if you're familiar with the surname Rankin in Fayette County, that was the family who owned him, uh, the Reverend Adam Rankin, to be exact. Reverend Rankin has a rather strange history. Uh, he was known to be an eccentric, pious, and completely intolerant man, and yet he was still beloved by his congregation. And the majority of his career would be defined by his absolute hatred of new hymnals being written for the Presbyterian Church. He once rode his horse over 600 miles to Philadelphia, uninvited, to decry the use of new hymns at a National Presbyterian gathering. Upon returning home, he burnt bridges in his congregation by refusing to administer communion to parishioners that liked the new hymns. Could you imagine that? No blue boat home for any of you. Eventually, he moved to Pennsylvania to continue his fight against these hymns, and he sold his slaves to other slaveholders in Fayette County. Lewis Hayden was sold to a clockmaker, and eventually uh, Hayden would marry a slave named Esther, and they had a son together. Sometime in the 1830s, the clockmaker sold Lewis Hayden's wife and son to Lexington's own Henry Clay, who then sold them to a cotton plantation in the Deep South. Hayden never saw his wife and son again, uh, despite trying to figure out where they were for the rest of his life. He eventually remarried a woman named Harriet and became a stepfather to her son, Joseph. And all throughout this, all throughout this time, 
as the clockmaker traveled around Kentucky selling his clocks, Hayden would approach more progressive whites and uh, would ask them to buy him and then free him. And they all declined, knowing it would mean their eventual arrest if they were implicated in helping Hayden. And so Hayden eventually met the Reverend Calvin Fairbank, who was instrumental in helping slaves escape to freedom. And a few other connections with the liberal New Englanders and Hayden, with his family, found themselves headed to Canada. And they carried bags of flour in the carriage to help disguise them should anyone look inside the carriage as it passed by. Now, ultimately, Reverend Fairbank was arrested and would spend a good portion of his life in Kentucky prisons for continuing to help slaves escape. Eventually, Hayden found himself in Boston after returning from Canada by way of Detroit. And there he met the Transcendentalists uh, and, and Unitarians, and in many ways they intersected. He met them at meetings of the Anti-Slavery Society, and he became lifelong friends with many of them. The Anti-Slavery Society was so taken with Hayden's story that they wanted him to become one of their regular public speakers, sharing his story all across New England um, and inspiring the abolitionist movement. And yet there was one problem. Hayden was a terrible public speaker. He would get so nervous and afraid in front of crowds of people that words escaped him. He would stutter, he would get tongue-tied, and lose track of what he wanted to say in the first place. Now, there is one story of this, of his public speaking, where it started to change a bit. In 1846, Hayden visited Concord, Massachusetts, and he gave a talk in a grove of trees in front of Henry David Thoreau's cottage beside Walden Pond. Thoreau had just spoken, followed by Emerson and a few other people, and Hayden gave a speech that the crowd would eventually write in their journals, uh, and they described it as stammering out touchingly, that which none has power to fully utter. What a glorious thing liberty is. Hayden was, as with his early contacts in Boston, fast friends with the transcendentalists of Concord, Massachusetts. They helped him, uh, along with many others, with his reading and writing skills, empowering him to compose a letter to another anti-slavery society. And I, I must warn you uh, that this letter makes mention of sexual assault. And so he writes again to us. Sir, while sitting alone in my room thinking of your meeting, my mind has been led to the South. There, gathering together my scattered and chattelized relations. But I cannot find them. Oh, when shall slavery cease? God speed the day, I pray, and when I dare to think or bring to mind one dreadful or terrifying fact, that the wife of my youth and my firstborn child is dragging out a life on some tyrant's plantation. I pray, you just look at the condition of my wife, driven all day under the lash and then at night to be at the will of any demon or deacon that has a white face. How long shall these things be? This letter found Hayden once again being pushed into a public speaking role, but he was quickly dismissed. His fear of public speaking was that great. And he was disappointed. He was disappointed in himself and in others, and he indicated as much uh, that his fear of public speaking was because he was only three years free and not used to having the permission to speak his mind. And yet he remained committed to the cause of abolition.
He opened a store that served as a way station for the Underground Railroad. It was a clothing store, uh, and uh, it offered warm clothes for escaped slaves on their way to Canada through Boston. And Hayden and his wife, they opened up a boarding house uh, just down the street from the clothing store that would offer refuge to uh, freed and escaped slaves as well. And not long after he heard about the minister who freed him in Kentucky, um, Reverend Fairbank, was still sitting in jail. Um, and when he heard about this, um, Kentucky officials said that they wanted Hayden back and they were determined to keep Reverend Fairbank imprisoned until Hayden was returned to his owners. And instead, Hayden called upon his growing network of transcendentalists and other progressive Christian friends and raised the $650 to officially buy his freedom. Reverend Fairbank was released, only to be imprisoned again for helping more slaves escape. Reverend Fairbank would spend a total of 17 years of his life in Kentucky prisons for his continued efforts. You'll remember I mentioned Henry Clay earlier, selling off Hayden's first wife and child. And that wasn't the last time Clay would impact Hayden. Henry Clay was instrumental in forming the Missouri Compromise, uh, hence his nickname, the Great Compromiser, which paved the way for the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, some 30 years later. Two weeks after becoming law, freed and escaped slaves, uh, they gathered together and they created a church in Boston. Some white transcendentalists were in attendance by invitation, as well as some traditional Unitarians. And there was a debate that unfolded there. Should they resist the Fugitive Slave Act with nonviolent means, as one of the Unitarians advocated when invited to speak to the assembly? Or should they use any means necessary? Now, the radical transcendentalists joined the rest of the assembly in advocating for any means necessary. Theodore Parker was amongst them. From that meeting, a vigilance and safety committee was convened in Boston. And to call them a committee is an absolute understatement. They were more of a force to be reckoned with. They were known to surround courthouses and jails and devise ways of rescuing captured slaves. Oftentimes, they just confused the police and whisked the person away. Sometimes, they would just rush the jailhouse, beating down the doors to free someone. And other times, they had to plan elaborate prison breaks, many of which were ultimately thwarted by the police. It was a heartbreaking time, especially if they were unsuccessful, often hearing about someone that they couldn't rescue, arriving in South Carolina being publicly flogged and never heard from again. The people they rescued often found themselves in Theodore Parker's home or his office at church. And this is the same Unitarian minister that had to keep a sword and a pistol near his desk for fear of his own Unitarian colleagues attempting to kill him for his radical views about religion and abolition. And it's striking similar uh, his views are strikingly similar to what we hold true today with our values. It was during that time that transcendentalism and traditional Unitarianism had a separation of sorts. Many transcendentalists remained Unitarian, this, this is true, but they claimed that transcendentalism was now the basis of the Unitarian denomination. And the long story short is that they eventually won the day, right? 
Many traditional Unitarians of the time cautioned against being fiercely abolitionist. They said, yes, there is a higher law of goodness that compels us to oppose slavery, but we must win the debate with reason, protecting the union, and not dividing our congregations. The transcendentalist Unitarians replied with, well, we believe in that same higher law and therefore have absolutely no problem breaking the fallible statutes and institutions of men in service to that transcendent good. Because of this, the transcendentalists remained in good relationships with the freed and escaped slave communities of Boston. Theodore Parker would go on to uh, reflect uh, in a very public letter uh, and say that fugitive slaves were the crown of his apostleship and he was called to save their souls in addition to everyone else's souls. And what Parker meant by that language, saving souls, was not something otherworldly or patronizing. It meant that he was called, and we were all called, to stay in the fight to defeat slavery and injustice and to defend his congregation members, in his words, to the last, should slave catchers come knocking. Parker, of course, was referring to his pistol, muskets, and sword as his means of defense. One belief of the traditional Unitarians that remained with the Transcendentalists was the notion of salvation by character, of our own character, and of ensuring that all people had that opportunity. That was what salvation meant to Parker, fighting for a just and equitable world by any means necessary. Now, despite this, Hayden never officially joined the Unitarian Church. And it wasn't out of disagreement. It was out of, uh, wasn't out of being the only freed slave in Parker's congregation either, for there were many that were members. Instead, Hayden remained in the 12th Street Baptist Church. And that was the same church that formed to respond to the Fugitive Slave Act. In the midst of the Civil War and after emancipation, the Emancipation Proclamation, Hayden immediately volunteered to recruit for the 54th Massachusetts uh, Regiment. And if you remember the, the movie Glory, that's the same battalion that we're talking about here. Hayden's stepson, uh, Joseph, would end up dying in the Civil War. And after the war, Hayden would keep up the fight. Um, he would keep fighting for representation and equality. He would ensure that statues and monuments were erected to freed slaves that paved the way for people like him. And then he died in 1889 and his funeral at an AME church was overflowing with mourners. This is a story both about our spiritual ancestors as Unitarian Universalists and, well, it also isn't a story about them. The story of Lewis Hayden is so closely intertwined with the Transcendentalist movement, uh, their goals and aims, it's hard to tell it without mentioning them. He was certainly welcomed and influenced by their teachings. And I can't help but feel incredibly grateful to share in that history. I've stood in that grove where he spoke at Walden Pond. And for those of you that have visited Walden Pond, I'm sure you have stood there as well, perhaps without even knowing it. And yet telling this story, you'll notice that people like Emerson, Thoreau, Parker, 
And, and there are many people that I didn't even mention in this story, such as William Lloyd Garrison or James Freeman Clark, who has a strong connection to Louisville, uh, First Unitarian in Louisville, or Lucy Stone. The transcendentalists are not front and center in this story. They did not clamor for the spotlight here. Theodore Parker put his life on the line with his own colleagues to speak the truth and oppose slavery, but he didn't make it about himself. The transcendentalists had a concept of what they called spiritual friendship. It wasn't a complex idea, not at all, not in the least. It was about vulnerability and as you might expect, about transcending difference. They shared their personal journals with one another. They talked about their innermost beliefs and ideals. And they supported one another across great distances. It allowed for a radical like Theodore Parker, whose beliefs paved the way for us today in 2021. It allowed him to maintain a strong network of allies when the rest of his colleagues abandoned him or threatened his life. It allowed Louisa May Alcott to have a network of deep support as she struggled with the extreme eccentricities of her father, Bronson Alcott. It allowed an escaped slave by the name of Lewis Hayden to become one of the most successful black businessmen in Boston at the time. And when hardship struck and he lost his business, he had the support to stay in the fight of abolition in whatever way he chose. It, spiritual friendship wasn't about rescuing one another. It was about recognizing difference and diversity while affirming spiritual kinship. We often think of the transcendentalists as only living in a cabin in the woods or sitting around a fire drinking tea and uh, debating the concept of God. That was only in the evenings and the quiet hours of life where such stories occurred. But most of the transcendentalists were urban. Their hearts were on fire to reform Unitarianism or to create something completely new. And they were devoted to their spiritual siblings. That was their model of justice. The simple act of knowing someone, really knowing someone, and committing to that friendship despite difference. The story of Lewis Hayden is a story of Lexington, Kentucky. It's a story about transcendentalism and Unitarianism. It's a story about the Vigilance Committee of Boston doing what was absolutely necessary for freedom. It's also a story of 12th Street Baptist, of freed and escaped slave communities across our nation at that time, crying out for justice, of their beloved friends, who disappeared in slave markets in the Deep South. It's a story of spiritual friendship and all of the heartbreak, triumph, and struggle that such friendship entails. Beloved community does not come out of merely adopting a new principle or discussing it. Though those things certainly raise our awareness Beloved community does not arise because we go to all of the marches or read all of the books about injustice. Those help too, though. It's good to do something out in the world and to educate ourselves. But the story of Lewis Hayden and the Transcendentalists teaches us is that beloved community 
is first and foremost about knowing one another, of leaving behind the superficialities of belief and preference and meeting someone face to face, soul to soul. And so let that be our calling. Let that be the foundation of our work for justice, for our joining in community. Let that be our prayer. Blessed be 